You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and therefore remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to be judged. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said... Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. All you need is say simply, yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. I can't really tell if the attendance is higher today or we just kicked a bunch of people out of the balcony, so they have to sit down here on the main level. But at any rate, looks great to have you out there. Uh, having heard today's scripture reading read by um, Lori and Kevin, would you say that Jesus is more like Kermit the Frog or Cookie Monster? Sam the Eagle or Animal? Bert? Or Ernie. 
So there's a 2012 article in an online magazine called Slate that said that uh, you can divide human beings basically into order muppets and chaos muppets. And we've got great role models. So order muppets like Kermit and Sam the Eagle prefer their personal lives and everyone else's to be governed by a set of rules. And chaos muppets like Cookie Monster and Animal are constantly breaking or bending or changing those rules. So order muppets are obviously the godly ones like Pastor Bob. Then there are sinners like Dr. Peter who are the chaos muppets who drive us to Xanax until we actually get to know them and we realize that there's something that God has putting them that is different from us that makes the world actually richer and better. So last year, a social scientist by the name of Catherine Fenton reframed this same concept, and she talked about rule makers and rule breakers. And so if it's a surprise to you that in your family or on the job or in your church or, yes, in our nation, there are both rule makers and rule breakers and that everybody's trying to make the other people more like them— It really shouldn't be a shock because uh, Catherine Fenton says, look, that's what every human society is about. you got rule makers and rule breakers and the people in between. So this is the dance of many a church and home. In our family, and maybe in your marriage, like you were a rule maker and married a rule breaker or vice versa, that has its own tensions. But Linda and I are both rule makers. We're both the order muppets. And we just assumed that our children would turn out the same as us. Go figure, it doesn't happen. So the rule maker says, I'm going to make the rules. I'm going to show you how to keep the rules. And the rule breaker says, I'm going to be a good person even if I don't keep your stupid rules. Order Muppets tend to be self-righteous. Chaos Muppets rationalize their sins. And so the rule maker says, be specific about what you want and I will do it. I will get it done. And the rule breaker says... I'm not going to do what you want, but often does something far better and different in their own unique way. The rule maker will keep the letter of the law with the spirit of resentment toward those who don't keep the rules. And the rule breaker will deliberately break the letter of the law, sometimes just to get your reaction and see what you have to say about it. Neither group emerges unscathed from Matthew chapter 5. If you think the big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the Old Testament is all about law and guilt and punishment, but by the time you get to Jesus, he's your cozy buddy who keeps telling you how wonderful and how good you are, just like you are, let's turn to Matthew 5, verses 21 to 48, where instead of now talking about the law bringing human judgment, Jesus says, if you break my set of laws, you're going to hell. So that's what he said. In the everyday world of Jesus, the order Muppets were called Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. And that meant that they were in charge of making copies, handwritten copies of the law, and then enforcing them, and in the case of the Sadducees, particularly around rules of the temple. Now, don't misunderstand me. The order Muppets of Jesus' day, just like the order Muppets of today, didn't always agree with each other on what rules were most important, but they all agreed that the world needed to be governed by a very specific set of rules. And then there were the chaos Muppets, in their view, which were the prostitutes, okay, we'd all get that, right, and the tax collectors, 
and the sinners, but they would also put right in that category Jesus, this new rabbi and his followers. The truth is that within every subculture, even within the tax collectors who from the perspective of the Pharisees were chaos muppets, within their own world, they were actually quite orderly. And they had order muppets and chaos muppets within their cultures as well. And you all who go to traditional worship may think of the contemporary worship as a, as a place for chaos muppets until you get over there and you realize there's a very orderly way in which contemporary worship happens. And so within each culture, there's always this push and pull between order and chaos. So it must have seemed very odd for the people on the mountain that day to have Jesus say to them right prior to our scripture reading, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Exceed their righteousness? That's like saying, unless you're a better quarterback than Tom Brady, don't even try out for Little League football. The copyists and the enforcers and the governors thought of themselves as supreme models of righteousness, and honestly, other people began to think of them that way as well. So Jesus' starting point for his Sermon on the Mount after the Beatitudes for this portion of it is the same as theirs. It's the Torah. It's the rule book as commonly understood and taught in those days. And he mentions some of the rules that they know well. Don't murder or you're going to be judged. Don't commit adultery. And if you divorce, do it legally. Don't break your vows. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Love your neighbor And the copyists and enforcers had created an entire set of case law around all of this because they wanted to put what they literally called a fence around the law. You don't want to just not break the law. You don't want to do anything anything that comes close to breaking the law because you have that much respect for God who gave you these laws. So they would say there are some exceptions, though, from time to time. Don't murder. That's the law. But it's okay if you don't really don't like somebody very much. And don't swear on God's name because that's binding, but you can swear on the temple or on Jerusalem. Jesus challenged their application of these half a dozen or so commandments But in doing so, he stated or implied by my count in just the passage that we read about 19 other commands. So I've done you a favor rather than having a 19-point sermon today, I only have 10. And to help you follow along in your bulletin on the right-hand side, this would be a good time to find that, I have summarized those 10 commandments of Jesus. Again, this is Bob, it's not... Anywhere else that is, you know, the Ten Commandments of Jesus. I'm just summarizing what I think he said there. So let's go through them rather quickly here. Number one from Jesus is to control your anger and your tongue. So Jesus says murder is not just an act of violence. The NIV begins anyone who is angry, but it's actually a verb that implies continuous action. So anyone who remains angry, who harbors resentment. It's not so much about getting angry as allowing your anger anger to control you. And word murder also gets you in trouble with God as thought murder does. So the word raka is an Aramaic profane insult. So let me just pause there for a moment. I thought about giving you an example, but uh, this is traditional worship, right? So think about a profane word 
that everybody knows is swearing and you're turning it into an insult to someone else. Go ahead, you've heard it somewhere, just let it go in your mind without my telling you what it is. And Jesus says, when you say that, you also are murdering someone. Whether if that someone is your ex-spouse or your ex-employer or your political enemy, the people who are obviously on the wrong side of today's politics, or that driver who cut you off in traffic, when you say, you fool or idiot or stupid, Jesus says that invites God's judgment in hell. Ready for number two? Urgently prioritize reconciliation. So he says, if you, you can come to church with your very generous offering, but honestly, as far as God's concerned, he'd rather you leave it at home and go find the person with whom you are estranged. Is there someone like that in your family? Is there somebody like that at work? Is there somebody who has taken you to court? Don't come to church. Go find that person. It's time right now to prioritize reconciliation. Number three, eliminate all triggers for coveting. So adultery is more than a physical act between two and thoughts that brought you to that point. And Jesus says those thoughts are just as serious before God. But lust is not just about sex, and uh, Jesus then uses two sort of dramatic statements, and he says, why don't you just gouge your eye out if it's prone to lust? Why don't you cut off your right hand if it's giving you trouble? And that leads me to believe that Jesus isn't just talking about sensuality here. He's actually talking about the broader context of coveting. And he's saying to you, whatever it is that is feeding the desire for you to have something that does not belong to you, eliminate it. Radically eliminate it. Now, I will say that nobody that I know of believes that Jesus means literally go take an axe and cut off your hand. But he is saying ruthlessly eliminate whatever is leading you down that path. So today he might say, get rid of your television. Unplug your modem. Do whatever it takes to cut off the source that is giving you a trigger toward wanting something you're not supposed to have. Number four, don't cause someone else to sin. Now, I could be wrong, but this passage often becomes a key passage when people debate divorce and remarriage. That's where Jesus starts, but then his reference to Deuteronomy chapter 24 actually goes so much further. When a man divorces his wife, and that's always how it happened in Jesus' day, not the other way around, she will have to remarry. That's the assumption. That's why he divorced her, so she could remarry. Women had no social safety net. So when she remarries, Jesus says, do you realize what you're doing? You're actually causing sin on her part and on the part of the person who marries her. So don't cause sin, whatever it is. Don't be responsible for someone else's sin. Number five, don't use or need oaths. So when Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made, he probably has in view not the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness, but the third, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. So some had come to believe that if you swear on God's name, that's very serious and binding. But if you swear on something else, like, say, the temple or Jerusalem, then it's like crossing your fingers behind your back. 
And Jesus says all of that is missing the point. Don't use oaths at all. You should never need them. And then he goes to the positive way to say it, which is number six, always tell the truth. Just be a person of integrity. No exceptions all the time. When you say yes, mean yes. When you say no, mean no. And if you need to swear at all, the act of swearing actually undermines your credibility with others. Number seven, do not resist an evil person. Wow, let's pause there for a moment. If it seems like Jesus is ratcheting up the level of how challenging he is, I think he's doing it on purpose. I think this sermon is a crescendo, higher and higher demands, and we haven't gotten anywhere near the peak yet. So the common way of interpreting an eye for an eye in Jesus' time is that fair retribution or revenge is legal and appropriate. Jesus says retribution, an eye for an eye, is not only not required, it's beneath you if you're following him. Instead, when evil is done to you, why not let it go? Justice is not your responsibility. If someone strikes you on one cheek, why not say, well, just turn and you can have the other one as well. If someone sues you for your shirt, why not just give your, turn your cloak over as well? Now, let me just explain those two. The shirt was the inner garment. The cloak was the outer garment. Technically, you weren't allowed to sue for a cloak under Jewish law. That would leave somebody without warmth at night. Jesus says, if they ask you for the lesser thing, give them the greater thing, even if it makes you naked, that statement itself would have been shocking to his hearers because nudity was deeply frowned upon by the Jewish culture. So Jesus says, he's using that as an example. He's saying, let yourself be taken advantage of, even in a court of law. Give them twice what they sue you for. If a Roman officer carries, uh, compels you to carry his pack a mile, which he was allowed to do, why don't at the end of that mile you say, hey, uh, I got time. Let's take that the second mile as well. Number eight, give or lend to whoever asks of you. All of us are asked from time to time to give money to those who are undeserving, people that we don't know whether they're going to misuse the money that we give them. And they may be lying to us about why they said that they need the money. Uh, There may be people who just always seem to need money over and over and over again. Are we actually helping them? Are we enabling their irresponsibility? And Jesus says, stop being the judge of whether someone is deserving or responsible. If they ask you, give it to them. If they want a loan, lend it to them and don't expect to be repaid. And then number nine... Love and pray for your enemies. So the law clearly said love your neighbor, but along the line, some, including the Essene community, the Dead Sea Scrolls community, I had interpreted that as a rationale to say, well, then I don't, I don't have to treat my enemies that way, right? They're not my neighbors. So love your enemy means hate your neighbor. And Jesus' commands here are shocking. You've probably heard them enough that they don't shock you. But imagine you had never heard it before, and you'd been trained with love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus says, I tell you, love, that's the word agape, which means it's not about how you feel about them. It's not about the relationship that you have with them. It just means do what's best for your enemy. 
And if someone is persecuting you, pray for them, not pray against them. We're pretty good at that. And some of the Psalms are wonderful examples. Like, I can find you Bible verses to pray against your enemies. Jesus says, I'm not telling you to pray against your enemies. I'm telling you to pray for your enemies. And why would you do that? Because the Father in heaven distributes his blessings on good people and bad. And if you only show love to those who love you, well, that happens in gangs. It happens in the mafia. How are you better than they are? Even pagans are kind to those who are kind to them. Treat every person as if she or he were your best friend. So if you didn't get the point till you get to number 10, he says, let me summarize all this for you. Be as perfect as God is. Not hearing a whole lot of amens this morning in church. If we treat Jesus' Ten Commandments like the Jews treated the original ten, uh, we've actually missed the whole point. If we start comparing Scripture with Scripture, like, did he really mean this? Or, you know, what about where Jesus said this? Or, I can find you a verse from Paul or Moses that seems to offer a contrast. We're missing the point because what we're really asking is, what's the limit of my righteousness? How far, really, Jesus, do I have to go? Like, I get the fact that you're demanding more of me, but, but like, how much more do you want of me? And then he makes sure that you don't miss it when he gives you number 10. I want you to think about God and his perfection, and I want you to strive to be as perfect as God is. So what do we do with this? It seems to me that most of us, when we hear a list of impossible demands, are either ready to give up, I can never get there, or we become defensive, or in some way we try to rationalize or give excuses. So most Christians, and in fact even most preachers that I hear preach or teach in some commentaries on this text, are really saying Jesus didn't really mean that, okay? So, or maybe he meant it, but he meant it for certain contexts. And if he knew our legal system, for example, he wouldn't be that extreme about lawsuits. This has to be hyperbole. It has to be exaggeration. And actually, I'm going to concede that, but only a little bit, okay? Because it's clear that some things are hyperbole in here. But if I start naming them, I'm doing exactly what the Jews did with the Old Testament law. Let me give you all the exceptions, but you make sure you keep the ones that aren't exceptions. So from Jesus' perspective, let's go back to rule makers and rule Bugnor Cookie Monster has it exactly right, but they're both onto something. God's rules... Like, don't quote this out of context, because I know somebody will. God's rules are neither meant to be kept nor broken. You say, it's obvious they're not meant to be broken, right? What do I mean by they're not meant to be kept? Not kept in the sense of, I'm going to find all of the ways in which I'm supposed to do exactly that, but limit it to that. So Jesus is doing something different here. He's not giving you a new 10 that you're supposed to check off and say, okay, I kept those 10, I'm good. He's going in exactly the opposite direction. So don't turn Jesus' 10 commandments into an update of the original 10. Okay, so what do we do with it then? Why did Jesus set the bar in this passage at an absolutely impossible height? I want to give you three take-home lessons from Jesus' impossible ten rules. And let me come down there a little bit closer to you while I do. 
So the number one take home from these impossible standards are to stop comparing. Stop comparing. Tim Keller has a marvelous illustration that Pastor Paul is using in a slightly different way, but when he told it to me, I thought it fit right here. And here's the illustration. The distance from the earth to our sun is roughly, if, you, if, if I can do an analogy here, I want you to think of it as roughly the width of this piece of paper, from our earth to the sun. If that's true, the distance from our earth to the next nearest star would be 70 feet high. So think of stacks of paper that are 70 feet. That's just the next nearest star. This floor to ceiling is 58 feet, so you've got to go 12 more feet and stack the papers that high. That's just to the next nearest star. The distance from the earth to the outer, from one edge of our galaxy, let's say to the other, would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And that's just our galaxy, which you probably know is uh, just a speck in terms of the rest of the universe, okay? So what's my point? I want you to think of the perfection, the infinite perfection of God as the infinity of the universe. And then I want you to remember that you versus other human beings, the difference between you and other human beings is roughly the thickness of this piece of paper. So stop comparing I don't know who's wronged you. I don't know who's treated you like an enemy. I don't know who you think your version of following Jesus is better than. But Jesus says, when I, when I end here and I say, I want you to be perfect as God, the number one response I want from you is stop comparing yourself to others. And you say, it's kind of an obvious point, Pastor Bob. And yes, it is. But you need it today. Because there's somebody in your world from whom you have created distance Because on some level or another, for some reason or another, you think they're really not as good as you are. And the first response I want you to make today is I actually want that name or that face in your mind and say, Jesus is speaking to me today to stop comparing. Now, the second response I think Jesus wants from this passage is to bask in grace, I didn't make this up any more than I made up the distinction between evil and good. Jesus does that right in this text. But he also introduces the grace of God when he says to you, God causes his son to shine on the evil and the good. So let's think about that for a moment. I don't know about you, but the last few weeks have felt to me like we lived in Seattle, Washington or something. Like why does it rain all the time? Right? Uh, I, will, I think I told you this a couple weeks ago, but I had to actually figure out how to install a sump pump behind my house because of the water that was getting in my exterior garage. So we've had that much rain, and that sump pump continues to be used, right? So on Friday of this week, I think it was Friday, wasn't it? Our first sunny day, whatever day it was, doesn't matter. I walk out of my office after the sun has come out, and it's so warm and refreshing, and pardon me for you fans of other uh, colleges, but it's like a Carolina blue sky. And I'm thinking, wow, the grace of God. But think about this. God brought that sun onto the faces and into the lives of every person who lives in Hickory, North Carolina, and surrounding area. He didn't just do it 
for good people, for church people, who, for people who commit respectable sin. So the second thing I want you to do is I want you to think about that part of your life where you think, man, I just can't make any progress. And I want you to bask in God's grace. If you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you've trusted him, you've looked to him for your salvation, if he's forgiven you, he's not up there going like, well, Bob, he's made a little progress in some areas, but I'm really sick of this one. I'm about to give up on him. No, I just want you to bask in the one who gives us sun and rain to remind us how freely and liberally he distributes his grace, and you are among the recipients. So when we, um, when we start with humility, and then we, the, the humility that we, that we stop comparing ourselves with others, and then we bask in God's grace and the security that that gives us, then we're ready for the third take-home point, which is never, ever stop striving for perfection. Nothing that I've done so far is good enough, right? Jesus is good enough, but my progress isn't good enough yet, so keep striving for perfection. You say, doesn't that doesn't make you crazy to strive for perfection? Listen, I would imagine every person in this room has some area in which you're striving for perfection. So it might be your job, it might be your business ventures, it might be your health and fitness. I know some of you Like you go crazy, you spend hours every day making sure you eat exactly the right things and get in your, you know, zillion cardiac hours or whatever and doing all that stuff. I'm just telling you, I'm not one of those people, which is why I can't speak very informed about it. In that area, like, but there's something, some area of your life in which in that area you're thinking, I'm really good at that. I strive for perfection there. But if I do that, isn't it okay that I get a pass on everything else? And Jesus is saying, no, it's not okay to get a pass on everything else. I want you to never be content with where you are because there's no part of your life that I don't care about. You are, I never want you to be where you are. And I'm just saying that there's probably somewhere in your world where even before you came to church today, you realize the Holy Spirit's been speaking to me about that. So you don't strive for perfection all at once. Whoever said that? You take the next step. Lord, what is the next step that you want to do in my life? And then there's really good news here. Because the same God who poured his grace onto your life is ready by his Holy Spirit to partner with you as you take the next step. Even that is not up to you. And you know what? He's given you the body of Christ. He's given you friends. He's given you colleagues. People who will come along beside you and help you be accountable and help you discern what God wants. So again, don't go out of here thinking like, which one of these rules exactly applies to me and in what way? That's not the point. Go out of here saying, what's the next step in my progress toward holiness? Never, ever stop striving. Let's pray together. Just take a moment and leave that question hanging in the air before the Lord and ask him, Lord, what's the next step in my life toward you?
Father, thank you for the security of knowing Jesus. Thank you for the wonder and power of your perfection. And thank you for the Holy Spirit who is working in us even at this moment to convict us and then to assure us and then to motivate us that we might be more and more like you. Father, take us from this place, and I pray that not only today when we leave, but this afternoon and tonight and all this week, your Holy Spirit would be prodding us that we might be more like you. Don't let us forget the way you've spoken to us today. And along the way, may we just see others as fellow pilgrims seeking and striving, some without the knowledge that they need, and maybe they need that from us, but all so far short of who you are. And may that attitude of grace not only permeate us, but overflow through us into the lives of those we touch. We ask in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand with me. The words of the Apostles' Creed, even though we're not studying them at the moment, we've taken a break, are still the essence and the heart of our faith. The words are in your bulletin if you need them. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. So usually as we um, go through our worship booklet, uh, Amy has prepared a a statement for us to come to this time and this week. How do you come to this moment of come to, to worshiping when you've heard this kind of a sermon of of affirmation, but it's not really affirmation. It's hard stuff. And I go back to the beginning of, of the worship time. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. As you give of your worship in your tithes and gifts, 
That's what I offer you, to come with a willing spirit, with joy in your salvation.